Okay, so we've had to lose the hamster wheel, the burning piano, the ice skater and the milkmaids. But at least the Bundesliga's back! Yes, great news for everybody. The Bundesliga is back, but Belgium have decided to call it a day, unfortunately, as we're just coming to air. Will Downing with you with another edition of Lockdown Football alongside my fellow Lockdown Football commentators, Dimitra Zulai, Stefan Johnny, Mark Rodden, and we'll be joined later by Dan O'Hagan to talk about the big Bundesliga kickoff. Well, I was supposed to be in the Netherlands all this week. What plans have you had cancelled recently then, gentlemen? Belgium, Netherlands, the FL Championship. And the MLS as well. There's a lot of games coming up for this well, this weekend and the previous weekends and the coming weekends. But unfortunately, uh, with the virus, everything has been called off. 21st of May, Under-17 European Championship uh, would kick off in Estonia. And I enjoyed working on that tournament uh, last year in Ireland. And of course, I hoped to get to Estonia and to, to see the tournament again. But, well... It's postponed now and we'll have to see what happens with that. Absolutely. All of our accommodation would have been sorted as well. Mark, what have you had cancelled on you then of late? Apart from work, you mean. Um, I was supposed to be in Madrid on a stag around about March 22nd. Would have taken in Real Madrid Valencia, I think, as well. Uh, Obviously, that didn't happen. And then uh, there was a wedding in Croatia uh, towards the end of May as well, so... Hopefully that'll all be done next year instead. That's all we can hope for. Um, The Belgian Pro League will be coming back later in the year, but they will not be resuming with the current season. It is all over. The Belgian Pro League having their meeting today. Club Bruges are the champions for the third time in five seasons and with three different coaches in charge. Wassel and Beveren have been relegated and I suppose to a large extent, it was on the cards because of what the Belgian Prime Minister had decreed a couple of weeks ago that no sport could happen before the 1st of July. Yeah, really uh, rubber stamping what was uh, said by the government and it was really just about trying to come up with a solution that served everyone really. No surprise and no real complaints that Club Bruges are champions, uh, 15 points ahead in the table with one game left in the regular season when play was suspended. Um, Champions for the 16th time. Uh, Wasland were two points uh, away from safety. They had a tough game against second place Ghent to come to uh, save themselves. Just uh, very interesting what's going to happen. It's still a little unclear in terms of promotion. Um, one leg of a promotion playoff was played between uh, Leuven and Bear Scott, I think, 1-0 up from the first leg of that. And it's uh, a little unclear. They've uh, said that you guys have to come up with a way of uh, playing this return match, whether it's on neutral ground in Belgium, in Leuven, or maybe in Germany, which has been suggested. And they have to do that by August 3rd, play that game by August 3rd. They have to give an answer by May 31st. And if those two clubs can't come up with a solution, then Westerlo will get promoted, unless Verton, who were refused a license for next season win a case on appeal and then they will go up because they've won the most points over the opening and closing stages of the uh, two-term Belgian second tier. It's 
ridiculously complicated and the solution is ridiculously complicated as well. Good news, the Belgian Cup final will be played before August 3rd. That's between Club Bruges and Antwerp. So Club Bruges have a chance of winning the double for the third time in their history. Oh, you completely lost me, Mark, I have to say. I know. Do you want to repeat? Uh, I can try again. Nah, it's okay. Once was enough. Thanks. And just use for you as well. Uh, one of my colleagues in uh, Belgium, uh, Patrice Tinsen, is a, um, a Belgian journalist and uh, just confirmed that Vincent Beveren will go to court. Yeah, no surprise. That makes sense. You wouldn't blame them in this situation, though, would you? Because obviously they had one more game to play. And if they'd won it and the results had gone their way, they'd have stayed up and Ostend would have gone down. But. It's not going to be played now. And for the second year football as well, Louvain against Beershot, just saying that now that if the game can be played before the 2nd of August, it means the winner of that game will be promoted. If not, it will be Vestelo. So the full situation, Club Bruges are the champions. They were 15 points clear of Ghent, who were runners-up. Charleroi finished third. They're in the group stage of the Europa League. It is their highest finish since 1969 when they were runners-up. Andelect in eighth. Under Vincent Company, have their worst finish since 1938. It's extraordinary. All that money, and they've ended up looking terrible. So, glory be, the Bundesliga is back. So, where were we? We're entering week 26. Bayern Munich are four points clear of Borussia Dortmund and five ahead of Leipzig. Borussia Mönchengladbach and Bayer Leverkusen aren't that far away either. And Dan O'Hagan joins us. From his garden. That's what I tried to do last week, Dan, and it didn't quite work out. It looks brilliant. Oh, it's great. So uh, so nice. And uh, early summer's arrived, I think, in Norfolk. So, uh, yeah, really happy. And I bet delighted that the Bundesliga's back and you've got a big job to work on again. Yeah. Um, first of all, lucky, because obviously there's lots of guys in our line of work who don't have work um, at the moment. So uh, fortunate that the Germans have uh, done things uh, the way they have and got football back. Uh, we know there's pressure on the whole German game to get this right and for us to get our kind of tone writing commentary as well, which I'm sure we will do. But uh, yeah, I've not worked now for, I think, 70 days tomorrow since my last game, um, which is longer than, than, you know, the end of one season to the next would be normally. Um, so it's been that long. So um, yeah, back to it with, um, for me, Frankfurt, glad back tomorrow. And obviously you would have been kept in touch with what's been happening in Germany and presumably behind the scenes, a lot of the Bundesliga World Feed productions would have been doing the same. We're hearing this, we're hearing that and so on. Yeah, I mean, we kind of got an idea the games were coming back maybe only, well, less than two weeks ago. We got the kind of go-ahead that it was, was going to happen, but we've kept our eyes on things and um, there's been, yes, it might, no, it won't, this will happen, that'll happen. But finally, we heard, uh, I think, 10 days ago that... Um, this weekend was going to be when it all got underway again. And um, yeah, match day 26 is going to happen. Was there an undercurrent or a threat or a thought that it might not happen, despite how well the coronavirus crisis had been tackled in Germany, that they may go the same line as the Netherlands, as Scotland's been threatening, and that the season would be shut? I think when you saw leagues like the French League, um, the Dutch League, say that's it I think you do think well maybe this is going to be a knock-on thing where all the major leagues decide to call it a day and uh, and wait till next season but I think with the Bundesliga um, the, the the clubs always wanted to get this season finished if they could um, and there was very much a collective um, almost unanimous I think pull towards making sure that happened 
and um, obviously now it is going to happen, or at least they're going to try and restart, and we'll see if we do get the uh, nine match days played. Hopefully, fingers crossed, there's going to be no flare-ups and no uh, and no kind of second spikes in the uh, in the virus in Germany. But um, you you know you never can tell the situation so fluid. Um, but um, but yeah, we're back, and uh, yeah, really looking forward to you know working on football again. Absolutely. And, you know, not talking about football not taking place. I mean, there was a situation with Dinamo Dresden a few days ago where some of their players had tested positive. Um, Is there a provision that if players start testing positive in the top flight that it may be stalled again or will it just work around them or continue without them for a couple of weeks? I think the plan is to work around any players who do test positive. Um, A positive test, as I understand, will not mean the entire team gets quarantined again. Um, but teams are in, are in kind of sealed camps in hotels before each match day. So every precaution that could have been taken has been taken. Um, it couldn't have been done, I think, any safer than it is going to be done. But obviously, it's a whole new world and it's never been done before. This whole situation, you know, football across the world closing down for, you know, two and a half months, that will never happen again, hopefully. Um, so for everyone, for every league going, this is this is a whole new world, and and everything is is extraordinary, experimental, and, and and untried. So we'll see where this one goes. But as I say, I think the German game have done all they can to make sure they're in the right place, the right position, and to give this the best possible shot. I mean, absolutely nobody's faced anything like this before. Who was an adult when there was a, a global pandemic last? In terms of the TV production, the world feed. Um, presumably it'll be a little bit different this time and obviously the stadiums will be because they'll be pretty much empty. Yeah, I believe the stadiums are allowing 213 people inside. Uh, Obviously that's uh, security staff, the players, the coaches, uh, the referees, um, the TV crews, that's all. So media very much not really included. Um, So we'll be commentating um, remotely. Uh, a mix of London and I think Cologne productions. Um, and it's all going to be done safely. Um, I have a co-commentator, Mark Schwartz, with me for my game on Saturday. And we're going to be sat the right distance apart. It's all very, as I say, everything that, that's been done to make this safe has, has been done. So we've got no concerns, no no great worries, no great fears um, about the production um, we work with great people and they have done every, everything they can to make sure um, that this will work and, and work properly. And um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. But you, you never know until it's been done. So this first match day for all of us is a massive test um, of the situation, of the technology um, and of how it all works. So uh, we'll see. We'll know by, by, by the end of Monday um, if it's all worked. How nice has it been to start preparing for football again and doing your notes and getting everything set out just so. I'd forgotten how much I missed the routine of, you know, prepping for a game. Um, you, know, you know, I was one who would kind of moan back in August and September of having too many games to prep for, um, but to have not had one for 70 days, um, you kind of miss the, you know, getting the pens out and uh, the blank sheet of paper and, and doing all that prep and um, going from scratch. But yeah, I mean, I think we've all missed it. And as I say, I know that on the Bundesliga, us commentators are very lucky because there's guys who work on the Premier League, on, on Ligue 1, on, on the Belgian League, as you do, Will, who, who don't have games this weekend. And I only hope that for all of us, this is the first step to, get, to getting the whole business back online because, you know, yes, obviously safety and health comes first for everyone. But 
an industry here that thousands rely on has come to a shuddering halt. So the sooner we get back to a form of football normality, I think, the better for all of us. And, I mean, the pity was, from a German point of view, it's been a classic season. Like, there are five teams divided by eight points at the top. It's really open, and it's, it's not a jaunt to the title for Bayern Munich this season. No, it's a four, if not five-way title race this season. Um, it was close between them and Dortmund last year. This year's even better. Um, Bayern looked look good, but they had their early season wobbles. They've kind of found their gear again after Christmas, as they often do. Um, Dortmund, great to watch, but very inconsistent sometimes. But with Jaden Sancho in, in full flow, this season has been terrific. I think Marco Royce is close or very close to being back to full fitness as well because of this break. Uh, Leipzig, the kind of, you know, the, almost the wild card who've come on so far in the last couple of years. And they're up there on merit with Timo Werner playing fantastically. And Brissy Mönchengladbach too, the, you know, the great team of the 70s, but no title since 77. Suddenly they're back in that title race and uh, looking good themselves. Um, and even Leverkusen in fifth place are not out of it completely. So, yeah, a five-way race for the title. It's been super to watch um, so far. And OK, with no fans there, it's going to be different. We know that. But um, hopefully we'll get a good uh, final nine games of the season to get that uh, title race down to the wire again. Well, for me, uh, the major concern, the most important thing to ask about is Werder Bremen, because yeah. they seem to follow a very peculiar and particular part. And uh, I noticed that my compatriot, Victor Skripnik, became the manager of the first team. Mm. But he came from the reserves and they were struggling. They stayed up. They did well in the beginning of next season, something like that, and then it just went down for them. So Alexander Nuri came in. It was the same model. Even talking about getting into the European competitions, then Kochfeld came in, and it's the same situation. Good start, and then they're struggling again. So what, what is happening with them for so many years now? I would say this season's problem has been injuries early on. They, I think for the first maybe two, three months, they lost almost all of their regular back four. Um, and this was a team already who'd had three or four years of having a dreadful defensive record. So they give too many goals away. And yes, they have really good players going forward. Uh, Milot Rashica has had a really good season, despite where the team are in the table. But I think a team that gives away too many goals year on year will eventually get found out they have this season. But injuries to players, I think, in the first half of the season did not help them at all because I think I did the game against Leipzig in September where they were literally the bare bones. This was like four or five games in. Um, and they've been, it's been really hard to kind of catch up with the rest because they've been, uh, as I say, really ravaged by injuries. And it's, been, it's a club who have been in the top division, I think, unbroken for nearly 40 years since their last relegation. And if they went down, it would be a massive blow, obviously, for them. But also, I think there'd be a big loss to the league, too, because Werder Bremen's a famous name, a famous club. And um, for whatever reason, the last few years have been uh, a kind of constant downward slide. Yeah, because if you remember back in the 80s, when Ottery Hagel was a manager, they had a fantastic team. And they had so many famous victories in the European competitions, and they ended up winning Cup Winners' Cup as well early in the 90s. And speaking of injuries, actually, well, uh, one of the players I loved watching whenever I was commentating on Bundesliga is Finn Bartels. I just loved him as yeah. a player. In the last two seasons, he had eight games. That's it. Yeah. Just eight games and all from the bench, just to show you how, how it happens in there. 
I think Bartles, yeah, he um, he ruptured his Achilles, I think, two years ago, which, as we know, is a dreadful injury, really hard to come back from. And he was already kind of pushing 30 or early 30s then. So it's been tough for him, but a really good player, a player who, when he's fully fit, um, kind of makes that uh, attacking area tick for Werder Bremen. But uh, yeah, he, the last maybe two or three seasons, he's not played enough games because of injury. But uh, when he's fit, he's, he's obviously a, a very important player for them. It seems, you know, there's a, from a common voice from Germany talking about, uh, yeah, we want the football to be back and, and so on and so on. But uh, for the last few days, we, um, I heard anyway from uh, one of the German TV, uh, AOD, that from a poll, basically 50, 56% of the Germans were quite opposed, you know, for the Bundesliga to come back. Yes. Um, and it's the same here in England, where I think the, kind of, the majority of the public are not in favour of football coming back here either. It was always going to be a kind of gamble. You know, you have to weigh up a whole host of things here. Obviously, people's health, public health is the first thing. But also football clubs need to, you know, to survive. And um, the German top two divisions, it's not like England where clubs are wealthy because of their owners. In Germany, that's not the case. Um, Clubs need games and TV revenue just to survive. And I think there was certainly a balance to be struck between coming back um, for health reasons and also coming back to ensure that these clubs still function um, and they can kind of, um, you know, honour their TV um, deal commitments and, uh, and keep on playing. But yeah, I'm fully aware that it's not a unanimous uh, public backing for the game coming back in Germany. But I think that's true in, in most countries too, where um, football, we've kind of seen that it is only a game. It is only sport. This is not the kind of, um, you know, the all-encompassing thing that maybe those of us who work in the game might sometimes think it is. Um, but um, yeah, it'll come back and obviously not everyone's in favour, but it is coming back. So we'll see how we go from this weekend. Apparently there's a scenario like from the uh, German League to um, if things doesn't go away, which we hope, you know, won't happen, but to stop the league uh, like the French or the, uh, the Dutch. I think that is always the kind of, you know, the um, plan B, if you like, if it doesn't work out. If there was a spike in uh, infections among players, they'd have to call it off. I think we know that. But they're going to give it a go. Um, And these protocols in place are done, I think, to ensure the games can go on with uh, the minimal amount of contact um, between teammates, even between the teams in the stadium. They'll come out of the dressing rooms separately. Um, I think teams are using more than one changing room. Goalkeepers will get changed in one room, attackers in another um, coaching staff in another, referees in another. So everything they've done to make this safe has been done. But um, we'll see if it's enough because obviously um, the whole world's watching the Bundesliga this weekend. And do you think your commentary will be affected by the fake crowd noises that you can see on, maybe on Sky? Well, that's the thing. We're not <laughs> going to use those fake noises uh, on the world feed. We've been told that. Right, okay. okay. I know Sky certainly, they've got this system where I think fans can almost phone in and vote for um, which chant they want to hear from the kind of virtual fans, which I'm not sure that works. But it is strange you know, to commentate when there's no one there because you do have to, I think, um, almost modulate your own voice. You can't kind of shout and scream the way you would if there's 80,000 people there, you've got to almost match the situation. Obviously, the game still matters. It's a league game, still points are at stake, but it'll feel weird. You know, I'm not doing the game at the weekend, but it's the Revere Derby, Schalke Dortmund, which normally is one of the biggest derbies in the world. Now, for that to be played with no one there, that's that almost, it's still the derby, but it's not the derby because the derby is the kind of fans. So it'll be strange for all of us. I think we know that. And the atmosphere is going to be completely different you know, a league which is renowned for its atmosphere. But um, yeah, we'll kind of see how things go with it. But, uh, you know, it'll be, uh, I think, hopefully we'll we'll never see 
this happen again where you know fans can't go to games because the fans in stadiums they make up so much of what makes this game special and just you know looking at again the uh, the league and uh, coming back and uh, we haven't heard about much about the players in Bundesliga and for the last few days you could hear like uh, some uh, manager will be concerned about the uh, players health looking at for example uh, injuries not being prepped you know properly to come back for a full, you know, league game in Germany and um, injuries, you know, players could be prompt, you know, prompt to injuries and uh, that could be an issue to be uh, in, the, in the near future for some of the clubs, especially the squads are not, you know, um, big as you could have in Bayern or Dortmund, for example. Yeah, I think the clubs have had maybe about four weeks of training, not always kind of full contact training either. Um, and, you know, this is like a pre-season, but there've been no pre-season friendlies. You know, they've had 70 days off. Uh, with no games played in between. So there is going to be a, a rustiness to players and a, a maybe a lack of match preparedness, which we wouldn't get normally in league play, certainly. So it's different. Um, and clubs will adapt, players will adapt to. I think in terms of fitness too, there's been a rule announced where, play, where teams can use five substitutes, um, which is new, um, to help them rotate their players more. Um, that'll help. Um, but yeah, that lack of match fitness is going to be very hard to overcome in the first couple of games, certainly different type of um, views coming out from the press conference like Wagner for example say look it's human if my players doesn't want to play uh, from Schalke you know Schalke and also Flick you say look I'm not afraid for my players so it seems you know people have different views about you know for their own clubs and you know playing on, on Saturday have you seen like recently like players coming out and expressing the concern about playing on Saturday and not being fully fit. I know all the players will be more or less in the same situation, but, you know, it can be quite worrying, you know, for the players. It's like all society, you know, some are in favour and some aren't. Players are human. Players are no different to the rest of us. So there have been one or two voices um, who've come out and, and said, you know, is this the right thing to do to be playing, you know, Bundesliga again? Well, um, you know, for every player that says no, there's one or two that, that will say yes. So it's a case really, I think, of... Uh, Football is coming back. Um, players won't be forced to play, of course. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm sure there'll be one or two voices that, as long as the games go on, will say, is this the right thing? But hopefully it'll be proved to be the right thing and we can get back to some kind of real normality now in leagues away from the Bundesliga as well. And I, I heard, like, uh, Anko Arlich, uh, the manager of uh, Augsburg, won't be on the bench this weekend because he bought apparently some press space. He did, yeah. Um, the idea is the teams are in this kind of hotel lockdown where um, they're kept almost in quarantine until match day. And I believe Heiko Herlich, who's not had a game in charge yet, um, it's his first game or would have been this weekend, uh, went out to buy some toothpaste and some skin cream um, at the local chemist. He was wearing a mask, he maintained his distance, but because that's a breach of Bundesliga protocol for this restart, he can't be involved at the weekend. But the club have said that they won't punish him further because it was a simple mistake. Uh, no harm was done. But it just shows that um, this lockdown the clubs are impo having imposed on them is total. And any breach of it by even a first-team coach uh, means he can't take part in the game at the weekend. Uh, apparently, he had a tumour when he's, uh, when he, in 2000 and uh, he recovered from that and he's put in uh, quarantine of, at least for two weeks anyway. Yeah. An awkward question, if you like. Uh, if the season had continued, do you think Bayern would have got it over the line by this stage? Or would it still, would it still be wide open? It's a horrible question, I know. It is. Um, I would suggest that it probably uh, would have remained tight. Um, I think Bayern 
though they have been much better since Christmas, um, haven't been the old Bayern. Um, and I think Leipzig and Dortmund certainly were showing signs of, you know, getting very close to them. So we, we don't know how it would have finished had we played on without the break. But I think we kind of come back with, uh, you know, nine rounds to go and literally all to play for. And I guess it's quite tough for the players, you know, um, playing behind closed doors. We've seen it, you know, in the Champions League with PAG against Borussia Dortmund. It was a very strange atmosphere in, uh, in the Parc des Princes. And uh, it's going to be very difficult for the players to get get used to it. I know they're all professional football players, but get, getting motivated for the games, not having people around you, it's, it's going to be a massive difference. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's going to be very, very strange. And, um, you know, I've commented on games where it's been behind closed doors and it just feels so flat. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be very difficult. And I think, you know, whoever wins this league, it'll be one with, you know, a question mark about would they have won the league had they had fans there? You look at Bayern's game this weekend, they go away to Union Berlin, um, one of the great atmospheres in the Bundesliga, but there's no one there. Um, that'll be, that would have been a very tough game for Bayern had Union had their, their normal home backing. So will maybe the lack of fans be to Bayern's favour in Berlin this weekend? You know, we'll never really know, but it certainly is going to be very different for all of us, for players, for coaches, for commentators, referees, everybody. So it's one we're going to have to get used to, I think, for the next few months. Is there a police plan in place to keep fans away just in case? You wouldn't expect it potentially in Germany, maybe, but that some fans may still try and go close to the ground as happened with Paris Saint-Germain in the Champions League a couple of months ago. I believe there is, yeah. Um, we did have one closed doors game before the break where um, Gladbach played Köln in a, a local derby and fans did turn up at the stadium that night. Um, but I think we've moved on since then. I think people are much more aware of the seriousness of the situation. I think they wouldn't turn up anyway now. So I think that won't be an issue, but I do believe there are police plans in place that if that did happen, um, action would be taken. Very good. Uh, Frankfurt against Gladbach for you then this weekend, which is, you know, it is a good, tasty game. Gladbach still up there, floating around fourth spot. Yes, um, back to it. And uh, yeah, Frankfurt uh, have had a difficult season, obviously lost their front three in the summer with uh, Rebic, Jovic and Allaire also. They scored 41 goals last year, very hard to replace. And the players who have come in haven't really done that. But Gladbach, fourth place, having a great time in that uh, title race, six points off the leaders' Bayern and playing great football. Uh, Marcus Turan, Lilian Turan, some's had a great season. Um, Alassane Player as well. So, good game. Um, I'm with Mark Schwartz on commentary and um, looking forward to it. Absolutely. And in a couple of weeks' time, obviously, it's going to be, you know, the classicer. It's going to be Bayern against Borussia Dortmund and it could have a big say into how the title goes. And again, a game which normally would be one of the great atmospheres, but um, it'll be different. Um, but when these two meet, it's always obviously a, a huge occasion. Stakes are going to be high. May well be a title decider again this season. Um, but in recent years, certainly um, Bayern have had the upper hand. Um, but Dortmund, uh, you know, this season have the attackers who can beat any team. We know Sancho has had a wonderful season. Marco Royce now back to full fitness. And a young player like Gio Reyna on the fringe too. 17, so exciting. And um, yeah, it could be, um, as I say, a game which determines where this year's Meistersharla goes. Yeah, Reyna's really worth talking about because the Bundesliga is the league to go. If you're a young talent, you will be given an opportunity and he definitely has. It appears so, yeah. At 17, uh, the son of Claudio Reyna um, scored the youngest ever goal scorer um, in the German Cup when he curled in the beauty against Werder Bremen uh, in February and looks a wonderful playmaker. Um, small, stocky, a kind of Messi-esque build to him. Um, 
full of tricks, uh, technique at that age, phenomenal, and um, looks to have a really bright future. Um, involved in the first team now, really, really since January, he's kicking on almost game by game and looks to be the, you know, early signs, yes, but looks to be the real deal. And in terms of Erling Haaland, he's come in and he has been sensational pretty much from the start. An amazing scoring record. Hattrick is a sub on his debut in the Bundesliga. I think it's six league games and nine goals, which has broken all kinds of records in the Bundesliga. Um, it was a kind of safe signing. We knew he was a good player, but I don't think we can't knew that he was going to be this good so quickly at the higher level in the Bundesliga. But um, looks a real handful. He's the player they've missed, I think, Dortmund, um, really in the last four or five years. They've missed that, that reliable centre forward. They had Paco Alcacer, um, but he was never fully fit long enough to get a run in the team to score goals on a consistent basis. But Haaland, I mean, his record um, with Salzburg was remarkable. His record so far in the Bundesliga is almost even better. Dan, recently there was some talk in Germany, just some interesting comments about the possible revision of the 50 plus one rule, which is very famous, which is very important mm. for German football. And that's what so many other fans in so many different countries envy. When they see that, when they compare it to the situation with so many clubs in England. So what, what, what is your point of view on that? I think it is what makes German club football special. Um, the fans have this sense that the clubs are still theirs. You know, there's, we've seen in the Premier League, certainly, where um, you know, owners from afar will come in and buy a club. And yes, it'll buy success. PSG as well. Um, in France, the same thing. Owners will come in, huge amounts of money, buy players off the shelf. And yet, it's success, but manufactured success. German clubs, because they date back to sporting um, in, um, institutions from the last what, two centuries ago, um, fans have a real ownership about their clubs, their, their sense of ownership. And I think they'd be very loath to lose that um, 50 plus one rule. If though it meant that more teams could challenge Bayern on a more consistent basis, then maybe there's an argument for it. But I just think to, to risk losing what makes the German game so special and makes the club game over there, the, the kind of club fan scene, the fan culture so, so unique, would be a shame to lose that. I think, um, you know, for all the pros of maybe losing that, I think the kind of cons would outweigh that and uh, we, we should look to keep the 50 plus one. Yeah, because interesting, it's one of the arguments, let's say, against Bundesliga is that people say, well, Bayern Munich seems to be winning it all the time. And I remember like in 2009, after eight rounds, Bayern Munich were eighth. Eight mm. points behind the leaders. And at the time, it was uh, Bayer Leverkusen and Hamburg leading the table. And we were talking in our program on the channel I was working for with our Bundesliga commentator and asked him, so who's going to win the league? Is it Bayern Munich? And they <laughs> did win the league and they played the Champions League final in uh, 2010. So that's one of the things that people sometimes mention when they talk about Bundesliga, that those who don't like spoilers shouldn't actually watch it. Yeah, I mean, Bayern are strong. They've won it now seven years on the spin. But last year was, was really close. Dortmund, I think, were only beaten on the final day to the title. Um, and this year, we say it's a five-way title race. So, you know, Bayern, they have the financial clout. They are, but they are the biggest team in the league by, you know, a fair margin. Um, they have the, the power to spend. They have the power to keep players too, which Dortmund um, can't. Um, the Leipzig model is to find players and then sell them on and buy and do, do things their way. But I think this year has been very close and very competitive and, um, you know, it's not been all Bayern's way. And 
you know, even now, I think nine games left, we can't call who's going to be the, the champions. Yes, Bayern are the favourites. They've got that four-point lead. But I think it could be close again this season. Just in relation to Union Berlin, um, mm. the Swiss manager, Urs Fischer, uh, apparently left the camp and won't be there uh, this weekend. Do we know exactly the reason behind, behind it or...? We don't. We're told it's not to do with illness or the coronavirus, um, but he has left the club, uh, left the squad on Wednesday, left the, the kind of quarantined uh, camp they've been in. Um, Urs Fischer at Union is a cult figure. This is the guy who took them to the Bundesliga for the first time in their history this season. And they've been a revelation. They've been superb. Um, the team, everyone tipped to be relegation fodder. They're in safe and secure mid-table. They beat Dortmund at home back in August. Um, they, they have, they've had a wonderful year with a team, in essence, of, of second division players. And Urs Fischer is a big reason why he's got them playing as a unit, as a team. So I'm sure there's nothing uh, sinister in this. It's personal reasons. That's all the club have said. But um, I'm sure we'll be back before too long. But uh, Urs Fischer, Union Berlin, that's a real kind of marriage made in heaven, those two. And uh, I don't think they're, they're going to break up anytime soon. Uh, looking at, at Offenheim, um, they're currently uh, eights on the table, uh, ninth on the table. And uh, Alfred uh, Schroeder, hmm. the assistant at uh, Ajax last season, and uh, took over the job of uh, Julian Nagelsmann, who left to RB Leipzig. That's a strange decision to appoint, you know, Schroeder, first of all. But uh, having said that, I know he was an assistant at Offenheim previously between 2015 and 17. But uh, the question is, how is he doing? Like, uh, has he made, you know, progress for the squad? Because Offenheim qualified for the Champions League last season. I know they didn't do well, but, uh, they, you know, you had to fill some big shoes with uh, Nagelsmann leaving to uh, Leipzig. And not just Nagelsmann, they lost a few players as well from that squad, which reached the Champions League for two years in succession. Um, so it was a case really of trying to almost build a new team at Hoffenheim. Um, it's not worked. They did spend in January, brought in uh, Munas Dabor from Sevilla. He's now injured, got a bad injury, I think, uh, just before we took this, um, this break for the season. Um, so they've had bad luck with injuries, but it's not been the same. I think Nagelsmann and that team overachieved for a couple of years. You know, they were um, up there on merit for sure, but always punching above their weight. And I think uh, Schroeder has come in, found the going very tough. Julian Nagelsmann, we know, is a very hard act to follow. I think Schroeder's found that because uh, they've been way, way short this season, Hoffenheim. Do you think he's the right candidate for the job? I think they look at his links. Obviously, he'd been there with Nagelsmann as an assistant coach, then at Ajax as well. So he's been schooled at clubs who've played a certain way they thought he'd come back as a head coach, knew the club pretty well, and could come in and almost pick up the pieces from Nagelsmann. It's not worked out. Um, they're mid-table. They're, they're not going to go down. I think European football is going to be beyond them this season. But, um, yeah, I think judge them when they have a, a fully fit team again next year because, as I say, they brought in Munas Dabor to really be the man to, to get that attack going again. He's now injured. Um, so they've been um, found, uh, found wanting. But don't forget, they went to Bayern one this season too. So on their day, they've been very, very good. But they've been inconsistent, which I think uh, is often the case for uh, a new coach. Well, you mentioned the fantastic relationship uh, in Berlin, in Union, uh, a true union between the manager and the club and, and the team. But what went wrong for Jürgen Klinsmann in another Berlin club? It didn't last long. He didn't last long, did he, um, Jürgen Klinsmann? It was always a strange appointment. He'd not had a club head coach's job since a disastrous spell at Bayern, I think 2007, 2008 or 08, 09, um, when things went really badly wrong for him at Bayern. 
Then obviously got the job as coach of the US national team. Um, had a home in California, seemed very happy in that job. Didn't really work out there either in terms of the, uh, of, of the football. And he was a strange choice. Hurt has been a funny club this season. They have a wealthy backer now. There's money there to bring players in. Um, they made a choice in the summer. Um, they had a very pragmatic style with Pal Dardai, the, the coach last season. It wasn't great to watch. It was solid. They were always going to challenge for maybe the last of the Europa League places. But the, the, the new backers wanted more. They wanted creative, exciting football, big-name players. So they gave uh, Ante Chovic the job. He didn't really um, f- uh, fulfill that brief as coach. He went, Klinsman came in into already a pretty messy situation. And um, yeah, Klinsman out of the game for so long as a coach, just never got going. Um, so now he's gone. Um, they have now brought in Bruno Labbadia, uh, obviously a much more experienced coach in the Bundesliga, very safe pair of hands, not really a coach who's going to um, do anything revolutionary, um, but a safe pair of hands. But uh, I think watch Herter in the summer. I think they will spend big and surprise players with who they go for in the transfer market. But um, it's been a very messy season. I think Klinsmann was uh, certainly part of that uh, mess in Berlin uh, this campaign. Yeah, that situation we were asking you about earlier, by the way, um, while we've been talking, it appears to have happened with Werder Bremen, that one of the Werder players has been put under a two-week quarantine. He's tested negative, but that's it. It's him affected and and nothing else. Yeah, I think the idea is that a player is taken out and then quarantined, but the other players can continue, um, obviously being monitored repeatedly, but can continue with um, the team not having to you know, not play their game because of one uh, positive test. In terms of all the various leagues you've worked on, this is a dream job, is it? This is my fifth season. Um, I love it. Um, I'm lucky that we have, I think, the best team of guys around me. We have a great commentary team, great co-commentators. Um, all of us live and breathe the Bundesliga. So although, yeah, I, I work on other things, the Bundesliga consumes me every weekend um i did premier league for match of the day for 11 years um love that but this i think now the bundesliga is it's next level um i'm lucky that i get to do so some of the pretty big games too the revere derbies the the uh classicers as well so i'm very lucky and it's a league that i love it's a league that i know inside out now um players clubs um chapter and verse it's all um, every week you, you, you enjoy it doesn't matter if I'm doing Freiburg Augsburg or Bayern Dortmund I love the game just the same because the German football um, when the stadiums are populated when they're full it's brilliant and um, I think the colour the noise um, the goals the excitement the Bundesliga has it's up there with the best leagues around and okay you can say Bayern have won it seven years on the spin but there's some great stories in there as well and um, this has been a great season so far Stefan uh, mentioned Hoffenheim who was asking about the manager. But I'm just wondering, why is there so much hatred towards the owner of the Hoffenheim? Because he is investing into the his home village, not even hometown, home village club. Yeah. It's a bit like Jack Walker Day. It's in England so with Blackburn Rovers all those years ago. So why do they hate him so much? It goes back to the 50 plus one thing where German fans like their clubs grown organically they don't like artificial input in terms of money and um, certainly uh, Dietmar Hopp um, played for the team I think for their youth team in his uh, childhood or um, early teens so he, he had a bond and a link with, with his village team and when he became a, a software multi multi-millionaire he thought right I'm going to invest 
in TSG Hoffenheim. Um, so he did. Um, took them from you know, the local leagues uh, into the professional game, into the Bundesliga in 2008. And they've been a fixture ever since. A lot of fans of other clubs don't like the way that club has been built on the, the software millions of hop. And that has continued now for 12 years. Um, we saw, obviously, before um, we had this break because of coronavirus, um, fan protests in stadiums, the game against Bayern, obviously, um, the 6-0 home defeat was interrupted um, for a long period by, by protests. And, yeah, I mean, scenes which Bayern, I think, uh, Uli Hoeneß um, condemned the scenes uh, from what he saw. And, um, and yeah, I think um, Hop is not popular. Um, whether that's right or not, you know, who knows? But the guy loves his club and it is his club, the club he played for. Um, so it's not like a corporation buying a club from scratch and starting again. This is a club he played for and, and it's his village team. So I don't quite understand the, the level of vitriol towards him, but um, you have to say, bear in mind, the way German fans see their clubs and like to see their clubs run and grown and Hoffenheim wasn't done in the traditional sense. Is it fair to say that he was not well accepted as well by the uh, corporate, uh, some of the corporate clubs like uh, Bayern Munich, uh, well established, you know, in Germany, obviously Bayern and other clubs like, uh, like them. And it's kind of an establishment and also very conservative. Bayern is a very conservative club. If you see like the members you know, in place, Rummenigger and Beckenbauer and so on and so on. And do you think that was an issue as well for the um, owner of Offenheim? Possibly, yeah. It is hard to become a member of that uh, exclusive club. But, you know, Hoffenheim, as I say, they've been there now for, for 12 years in the Bundesliga. And these protests, these, um, these gripes against Hopp continue to be a factor. Um, you know, and uh, you can't see that stopping anytime soon. You kind of hope, I mean, maybe this is me being a bit wishful thinking, but this whole coronavirus thing, hopefully it'll make us all think about being a bit kinder, a bit nicer, a bit more understanding towards people and everything, because we've kind of seen that it's a bigger world than just football. And uh, hopefully um, this might kind of filter down and, and people be kind of, you know, towards each other a bit kinder, a bit nicer, but who knows, but uh, certainly Hop and Hoffenheim, it's not a story that's going to go away anytime soon, I don't think. And do you think there's a feeling that the, the, the top players in Germany try to exclude him really like, you know, from the, the circle? Like? Um, I think Hoffenheim have kind of got in now to become almost an established club. Whether or not he was accepted from the outset as part of that club, I don't know. But I think in playing terms, certainly, um, certainly with Nagelsmann there for a couple of seasons, they did become among um, the German games elite, playing in the Champions League as well. Uh, group stage one season, uh, the qualifying rounds the previous, um, they did become a, a, a player in that club, but it's a hard club to get into and uh, whether Hopp and Hoffenheim fitted or, or will fit, I don't know. But um, personally, having watched them play, I think they play good football. I think they, uh, you know, they do add to the Bundesliga, but um, you can kind of see why and there is still that undercurrent from some clubs and some fans against them. Do you miss Hamburg in the first Bundesliga? Or maybe that season or more than one season in the second Bundesliga will serve him well? I think with Hamburg, we all saw this coming. Um, it was like Sunderland in, in England, where year on year, they would spend big and struggle. And eventually, it was going to happen with relegation. It did. Um, their first ever relegation from the Bundesliga a couple of years ago um, and it's been tough to get back. Uh, Bundesliga 2 is very hard to escape from. Um, big clubs find it tough to get back at the first attempt. Um, and last year they fell short. Um, 
we do miss them. They are a big club. They are a famous club. Um, but I think sometimes big clubs have to go down to almost cleanse themselves and start again. Uh, and hopefully if they do come back, they'll come back stronger and able to compete more because a club of that size really should be you know, pushing for um, European football. But um, for year on year before relegation, it was almost a kind of a relegation waiting to happen. And how do you view the uh, progress from uh, RB Leipzig? Uh, obviously, Julian Nagelsmann is in charge of the club and uh, it's a big corporation and, uh, and they follow more or less the same model that uh, City acquiring uh, different clubs across the globe. And uh, do you see progress internally like so far and uh, from you know, Nagelsmann's arrivals? Yeah, I mean, Nagelsmann has got them playing wonderfully. They were playing well last season, um, but uh, I think he's taken them on to uh, the next level. I think their model's interesting. I think you look at, um, okay, they're, they're, a, they're a corporate club. We know that. They are um, Red Bulls club. But the way they do things is they don't tend to buy players off the peg as the finished article. They will, they will look in places like um, the Austrian Bundesliga, the Swiss League, the French Second Division, and, and find these players who have maybe kind of been missed by, by bigger clubs um, and then develop them further and then maybe sell them on for a big profit. That's their way of doing things. Um, obviously, they've got their link with them, Salzburg and Austria too, who they, uh, who they will trade players with. But I just think they're an interesting club. Um, their facilities, they've built an amazing academy and it's all geared up to be a club that does compete long-term. They're in this for the long-haul Red Bull um, with Leipzig. And um, again, like Hoffenheim, it's, it's upset the kind of football purist in Germany. But um, you look at them and, and the, way they, the way they play has actually won some friends. I think had they come up and been negative and, and not great to watch, the kind of vitriol would have been certainly uh, more, more, more visible. Um, but because they play really good football, um, they're actually, it's actually quite hard to dislike Leipzig. Um, you look at Timo Werner, brilliant. Uh, Yusuf Palsen has been there since their third division days. Um, they brought in players this year like, like um, Danny Olmo, like Patrick Schick. Um, good young players who look excellent. Um, they're defenders. I mean, whoever scouts them, I don't know, but he's done a great job. Dayo Upamecano, probably the best young centre-half in Europe at the moment. Ibrahim Konate, I think, came in from um, Socho in France in, in, in the second division, and it's been a, a real revelation. Brilliant. You know, their, their recruitment is first-rate, and the way they play is a joy. Uh, they've got probably the best young coach in the game as well in Julian Nagelsmann. And uh, they're set fair now to compete in the top three for many years to come because it's all been put in place and put in place, I think, I think well, and uh, they've gone about things in a way which has worked for them. I know the season is not over, but uh, initially, at uh, the beginning of the campaign, we thought Leipzig uh, you know, could have been a contender to Bayern and, and Dortmund. And, but it seems, you know, the five points behind Bayern. So yeah. what, what, what went wrong, basically? Um, I think... It's not so much what went wrong. I think you look at Bayern after Christmas, just hit their kind of superhuman gear where they blew teams away. And Leipzig do still drop points in silly games. Dortmund are the same. Dortmund, you look at last season, Dortmund, they, they were beaten, I think, at Fortuna Dusseldorf. They dropped points um, at Augsburg. It's, it's silly games like that where Bayern's rivals tend to slip up and Bayern simply don't. Bayern are this consistent machine where they will um, win games that other teams will stumble in. And Leipzig, I think this season, have been the same. They've been, they've been great. It's just one or two games where 
and they've just taken their eye off the ball maybe and, and, and allowed cheap goals and, and mistakes to, to, to cost them dearly. But as I say, they are going to be, I think, going forward, an established top three team uh, for many years to come in the Bundesliga. Now you touched base on consistency, which I think the key word for Leipzig, but why do you think they can improve, basically? I think they'll improve because of Julian Nagelsmann. I think this year is his first year to kind of get his ideas across to them, to get them playing the way he wants. Under Ralph Rangnick, they, they were good. But Nagelsmann has taken them to a, a whole new level. Um, you know, he's, he's got uh, players like Timo Werner, again, to a, a whole new level. You can see why he's wanted by half the clubs in the Premier League. Um, exceptional striker. And Nagelsmann's style has really unlocked him. Um, he can use his pace um, when he breaks away for them. And um, I think Nagelsmann um, has taken a good team and made them even better. When you talk about this model uh, for RB Leipzig, is it fair to say that there is one person behind it, Ralf Rangnick, when he became a sporting director almost eight years ago. I think yeah. it, was, it was a long time ago. So was he the person behind it? But what, was that his sole responsibility to build the club in that way? Or was it Didier Matashic who said, okay, we're, we're going to bring the young players and they will sell them on. We, we're not spending that much, even in the first Bundesliga. I think it's a Rangnick thing. I think obviously, you know, he's one of the great thinkers in the German game, has been there for over 20 years. Um, and I think what he's done um, from his days with Ulm upwards, um, he's been a great thinker and he will have seen Leipzig as a great project um, to go to and to, to really mould an entire football um, ethos, not just Leipzig, but also their clubs in the US, in Austria um, and in Brazil. So he's overseeing the, 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 the whole Red Bull football empire and Leipzig certainly, I think, are the kind of pinnacle of that. And, um, yeah, the ethos they have to find these young players, um, you know, Naby Keita at Liverpool was one. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll see uh, Konate and Meccano move on to, you know, bigger clubs um, going forward. There'll be a kind of Leipzig um, fingerprint on a whole host of clubs where players have been brought through um, that system to go and play elsewhere. But uh, it's exciting. They're great to watch. I, I was there a couple of years ago um, when they beat Bayern for the first time, you kind of felt that was a, a real special day because that was the first time they'd beaten Bayern. And I think for any club in the German game, that is when you kind of know you've arrived, when you can kind of go toe-to-toe and, and, and beat, okay, on a one-off basis, but beat Bayern Munich. And um, I got the impression that day was maybe a day the club came of age a bit. Now, when we invite commentators on, we always like a few commentary heroes to be nominated. I'm sure you've got a couple, Dan. I have. Well, I mean, for me... There was only one really, Barry Davis, um, who in my childhood was, for me, the voice of football. Okay, you know, John Motts and Brian Morris contemporaries. But for me, I was always in the Barry Davis camp. I think um, he's, he didn't over-talk, but the words he would choose were the right words at the right time. So a very judicious um, wordsmith who... As a TV commentator, I think he nailed it in that Barry Davis only spoke when he had to. But when he did, it was always worth listening to. Um, iconic voice. Um, and not just football, too. Olympic Games, he'd commentate on a, a whole host of sports. That versatility, I think, is something as well that uh, these days isn't always um, appreciated. Um, but yeah, for me, Barry Davis was the absolute maestro. I mean, still commentating on a couple of things even now. But he, like, do you feel he, he finished football or football finished with him just a little too early? Maybe. I think Barry Davis, you think back, he'll always be thought of as being the BBC's number two because he didn't do, he did one World Cup final 
and it was always John Motson who would get the bulk of the bigger games. Um, I think that's harsh because, you know, there wasn't much between them. Let's be honest, they were both excellent commentators. But for me, Davis was my preferred style. Um, but, um, yeah, will he be... Pre- I, th- I think guys in the business talk about Barry Davis with a huge reverence, a, 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 warmness, a, a warmness and... Um, I love that, you know, this was a guy who, we all know the guys who are at the top of their game. And Davis was for decades at the top of his game. And maybe was a bit hard done by, you know, not to get more of the real showpiece matches. But um, as a voice, as a broadcaster, peerless for me. And uh, yeah, Barry Davis for me was the absolute pinnacle of um, what a commentator really was and really could be. And in terms of radio? Radio, I grew up kind of in the days of Radio 2, the kind of precursor to Radio 5 in the UK. And Peter Jones, again, that silky delivery, that wonderful voice. You know, he died in 1990. So, um, you know, it's a long time ago now. But I remember, you know, as as a young boy uh, with my uh, parents' transistor radio tuning into midweek cup ties on, on, on Radio 2, that voice over the medium wave crackle, fantastic. And, um, yeah, you think, you know, There weren't that many commentators back in the day. You think, you know, radio and and, and TV, there weren't many channels, there weren't many voices doing it. And maybe that's why they did stand out. But I think Peter Jones, for me, was just the consummate radio voice, that cool authority, that calmness. I mean, his words at Hillsborough were chosen incredibly um, tactfully, thoughtfully, in a very measured way. You know, God forbid none of us ever have to handle a situation like that. But the way um, Peter Jones did was just, it did an awful situation justice. It did it um, respect. And it was done in a way which I would hope I could come even a tenth of the way to replicating should that ever be um, the kind of sad and fortune to befall me to be in that kind of situation. Well, Dan, thank you very much for joining us from your lovely garden. Um, something I've been trying to emulate myself, but the Wi-Fi doesn't work out there. Real pleasure, mate. And so say all of us. And there's been a big situation brewing in Marseille, Stefan. Yes, Marseille, it's a very uh, chaotic situation at the minute. Uh, Antoni Zubizarreta resigned. Obviously, it's, uh, he left as a common agreement. He was at the club since 2016, came over from uh, Barcelona. There was a uh, huge hope that uh, he would have brought some uh, big names and or some young promising players from Spain. And uh, we believe he had a, a great network, but unfortunately decided uh, to part ways with Marseille. It was an agreement uh, uh, between him and Jacques-Henri Hérault, the president of Marseille. Uh, it was a common agreement and uh, it was confirmed last night. And uh, we, we believe more, you know, there were more people living in the club. It seems, you know, there's crisis, a crisis looming in, uh, at Marseille discussion about maybe you know the club to be sold from uh, you know to some uh, a prince from Saudi Arabia and the question mark is uh, Andre Villas-Boas will be still the uh, the manager at Marseille for the next uh, 24 hours that's a big question and that's going to be a huge loss if they lose those two people especially if Marseille qualify qualifying for Champions League next season. Is there any way that it is salvageable do you think? That's going to be very challenging I mean Marseille it's very you know particular club that's fans are quite uh, at times uh, eccentric and they can be at times very violent as well they're not afraid to express you know their opinions and uh, physically uh, to the players and sometimes to the staff and uh, 
Look, I think Frank Marquardt uh, will definitely sell the club. Well, I can't say definitely sell the club, but when you have your top players like Mandanda, Tovin, who still have only 12 months left on the contract and not been told what's going to happen for the next year, a few months, and not extended the contract, probably leaving the club next season on, on a free transfer. Question has to be asked here: What do they want to do with the club? And uh, losing your sporting director and probably Andre Villas Boas, who give himself 24, well, 24 to 48 hours to make a decision. A scatter the club left uh, yesterday with Sandoni Zubizarreta. There's a lot of things will change uh, probably for the next uh, next 12 months. So yeah, it's 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 a serious you know serious issue for the club. And those, you know, we all know that Marseille has some serious financial problem as well uh, with the uh, financial the uh, financial fair play. And the Austrian Bundesliga is due to come back in the next few weeks, but a bit of a problem for the leaders, Lask of Linz, Mark. Yeah, Lask have never won the league title, the Bundesliga title, since um, it was formed in the 70s. Obviously desperate to win it this year. They're three points ahead of uh, Salzburg, who've won the last six, but uh, a little too keen because um, they were caught out doing some collective training sessions um, before they were allowed to, a couple of days uh, before they were uh, supposed to, uh, some images came out. 11 out of the 12 clubs have uh, protested and complained that uh, Lask were uh, effectively cheating and uh, putting everything at risk. Today, there was a press conference in which the um, Lask vice president, Jürgen Werner, said it was a really stupid thing to do. They all admitted we did four sessions that we shouldn't have. Uh, We were trying to gain some momentum. We let emotion guide us. The vice president actually offered his resignation to the club president, who apparently didn't know until the news broke, until these images started coming out. To make things more complicated, Lask said someone broke in, filmed training, put some equipment there. So all sorts of shenanigans going on. Uh, the health minister has said this was a very serious foul. With uh, the league start to re- uh, set to resume on June 2nd, you'd have to wonder, will they be in line for maybe a points deduction? Because a fine is surely not enough in, in that case. Before all that, May 29th is the uh, cup final to get them going. Salzburg against uh, second division. Austria Lutenau. And how much are you looking forward to the Bundesliga in Germany coming back this weekend? Yeah, I think everyone's looking forward to it. We've all been starved of football and also we just want to see, I guess, can it be done and will it work? And if it works in the Bundesliga, if everything passes off without incident, then surely everyone else has a plan, has has a roadmap for uh, continuing their seasons as well. And maybe the likes of the French League and some of those French clubs, for example, who called uh, things a little too early might be saying, well, maybe we should have held off and uh, continued uh, going or holding on until the situation improved. But it should be an exciting title race as well with uh, three teams in the running, Bayern, Dortmund and Leipzig. So uh, lots to play for still. So our classic game this week was uh, shown in highlights form on BBC television last weekend. The Soviet Union against Belgium, the second round of the World Cup, and one of those games that pops up every so often in terms of classic collections. Belgium, who would reach the final of Euro 1980. Soviet Union, who would go on to the final of Euro 88 to be beaten by the Dutch. But they came head-to-head in Leon, 15th of June 1986. Igor Belenov putting the Soviet Union ahead with a belter outside the area just before the half-hour mark. Enzo Schifo equalising 11 minutes into the second period and Belenov to make it 2-1 with 20 minutes to go. 
that's the point where my mother turned the TV off. So, I mean, the Soviet Union got it over the line then. 2-1 victory. Absolutely magnificent. And just things continued from there. That That is how it finished, isn't it? Yeah, 4-3. <laughs> yeah. So while I was um, in bed and probably not asleep, Jans Kuhlemans had equalised dramatically with 13 minutes to go, the old Belgian veteran. So that sent the game into extra time. Stefan de Mol had put Belgium in front just towards the end of the first period of extra time. Nico Clausen, who off the back of that performance and Belgium's run to the semi-finals, he ended up at Tottenham Hotspur making it 4-2. Within a minute, the Soviet Union getting a goal back through Belenov to complete his hat-trick. That from the penalty spot. And Dimitra, a great Soviet team, 12 of that squad from Dynamo Kiev. Was it seen at the time in Ukraine when you were growing up as a Ukrainian squad? Well, it's uh, difficult to say how people were thinking about it back then because we're still talking about 80s, about Soviet Union. But of course, it was a matter of pride. You know, a lot of... Ukrainian players playing for then national team just a month later after lifting the Bunis Cup in Lyon at Stangerland. I think we've mentioned it previously that the national team was struggling in the friendlies, preparing for the World Cup. So that win against Atletico Madrid was a good enough reason for the federation to sack the manager and appoint Valery Lobanovsky again, even though he was sacked from the national team back in 83 when Soviet Union didn't qualify for the European Championship. And the, as everything was run by the Communist Party, of course, the Communist bosses advised not to employ him ever as a national team manager. And then just uh, well, two and a half years later, he was back and he returned with that sex snail win over Hungary in the first game of the World Cup for the team. And then they drew with France, they beat Canada and faced Belgium. It's interesting to know that a lot of people were convinced that actually refereeing decisions went against the team, that Belgium scored two goals from offsides. And when you watch it, uh, like, first of all, I want to ask you, when you watched it, did you notice anything about it? Did you really think, oh, that was a bloody offside there? When I was watching at the time, no, absolutely. And again, you were very asleep at the time. Well, that's correct, yes. When I was watching it properly for the first time four years ago, uh, no, and the same last week. What I thought was maybe the, the equaliser from Kuhlemans, you could argue, but what I noticed most of all, every all four goals, and a friend had asked while we were watching the highlights, you know, how did this Soviet team not do more? All four goals, absolutely static defence, dozy defenders. Exactly, because, you know, you, you said maybe, because I remember back in 1970, Soviet Union played Uruguay in the quarterfinal of the World Cup, and Uruguay scored a goal after 116 minutes, I think, something like that. And again, everyone in the Soviet, when I was growing up, everyone in the Soviet Union was telling the story how the ball went over the line. And by the sound of it, it probably crossed Mexican-American border uh, when it went over the line. But when I found video many years later and I watched it, I was like, well, I can't say if it's over or not. So there was no reason for them to stand there and raise their hands and show to the referee that now nah, the, the ball was out of bounds. And I think 
same things were happening there. Because, of course, four years later, the same Swedish referee was refereeing Soviet Union, Argentina, and Maradona used his hand of God again to save Argentina from an obvious goal. So people were saying, oh, yeah, it's the same referee who did the Belgium game. But conceding four goals in the playoff game of the World Cup is not good enough. So that's it. That's the problem. Uh, looking back uh, to the uh, Soviet uh, team, what struck me was a fast-paced game and they were very good on the break and very quick. Zavarov and Belanov for the front. It was, they were very you know, interesting players and you know, they, they were excellent and great to watch. And well, that game was you know, a great game of football, obviously 4-3 after extra times. And, uh, but you know, the first game of the Soviet Union, 6-0 against Hungary with uh, six different goal scorers. I thought it was absolutely amazing. And they were winning like three 0 after 30 minutes. I thought they were very, very impressive. And and they finished, you know, top of the group ahead of France uh, during the World Cup. And then France went to beat Belgium for the third play match four uh, two. They were not physically like, you know, big players, but so quick and technically very gifted. And if you look at, you know, on the Belgium side, you know, some tremendous players like Enzo Schifo and Frankie Verkotoren, Anderlecht manager, and some big, big players, Enzo Schifo was uh, such a maestro in the middle of the park and uh, very technical players with Frankie Vercotto. And, and uh, that's what reminds me of that game. Just, you know, some key players in both teams, but, you know, core players come from Dinamo Kiev at the time, one of the major forces in Europe. How late was it in the day before the tournament? It was decided it would be thus, that it would be the Dinamo Kiev squad, the Dinamo Kiev boss. I remember it was a game against Finland early in May, probably a few days after the Cup Winners Cup final, which was on the 2nd of May. And they drew the game in Moscow against Finland. So it happened very quickly. It was probably a couple of weeks before the tournament kicked off, or maybe a bit more, but no more than that. And we didn't get to see that Cup Winners Cup final, if I remember. Was that the one that was played on a Friday night? We'd seen Everton the season before winning the Cup Winners Cup, and we'd seen Ajax win it the season after with Van Basten, but we, we hadn't that game live in 1986. I remember they were trying to run off the European finals very, very quickly, just before the World Cup kicked off, because it was a very early... I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Will. Yeah, I'm just checking it now. It was Friday, because I never thought about it as a Friday night game. Yes, honestly, it was, uh, it was a Friday night game, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Because that tournament kicked off very early, the World Cup. It was the 31st of May kickoff. It was finished on the 29th of June, 24 teams, 52 matches. And they just absolutely rocketed through it in a way that you don't get really with tournaments these days. One of the interesting things about that game as well, or one of the more surprising things, seeing the Soviet Union implode like they did, was the fact that Belgium weren't in great form. They qualified for the second round as one of the third place teams Behind Mexico, second uh, was Paraguay. They drew with them. They beat Iraq by only two goals to one. So watching it back and seeing Belenov get that wonderful hat-trick, I think he finished with four goals and six assists in the tournament, European footballer of the year for 1986 as well in the end. It was a real surprise to see uh, the Soviet Union lose that game. And I know Dimitro's talking about maybe the conspiracy the idea that there was uh, some sort of conspiracy about it. But is there not some sort of feeling that maybe this was a massive missed opportunity for that side? It was indeed. Yeah, obviously. Because it's interesting, before that game, people were talking about the next opponent, a possible next opponent. And they were talking about Denmark, because it was Denmark v Spain. If you remember, Spain won the game 5-1. 
So it was amazing that Denmark and Soviet Union were in the same qualifying group just as with Ireland. You must remember that. And they had a fantastic game in Copenhagen. I think Mikael Laudrup uh, said that it was the best game he ever played in, in his career because both teams were playing really well and Denmark won it 4-2. It was, it was a great game of football as well. So they were hoping for a new mate in Denmark. It's not that they thought, ah, Belgium is just not an opponent. But seeing what they have done against France, they did play really well against France and they beat Hungary 6-0. People did hope that it would be a quarterfinal between Soviet Union and Denmark. But as it happens in football, well, it was something different. And it wasn't thought of at the time. It's just what a group Ireland were in in that qualifying group, finishing behind the Soviet Union and Denmark, losing their last two games to those two. And they ended up being two of the best teams in Europe of the 80s, full stop. And Ireland and poor old Don Han just couldn't compete with that. Just having a look through that Soviet squad as well, only five players with clubs from modern-day Russia, which is quite extraordinary because it wasn't just Dinamo Kiev uh, supplying players, but also Dnipro as well from Ukraine. And Dinamo Minsk with Sergei Elenikov, who had a, a decent enough tournament uh, getting on the score sheet too. Yeah, Dnipro was a very good side at the moment. They won the Soviet title in 83, and they would win it again in 88. And if Stefan remembers, they played against Bordeaux in the quarterfinals, I think, in the European Cup, and they was decided on penalties. Just one missed penalty, and they were out. So it was a very good side at the time, competing in Europe regularly. They had some good players. But the thing is, since it happened just a couple of weeks before the World Cup, it was very easy for Labanovsky to say, so I'm taking this team. I'm just adding a few players from other sides, of course, but I'm taking this team because this team is ready. And it had a fantastic season. It, they won the Cup Bonus Cup that year. Later, they won Soviet title, and it was the second in a row. And also, when the qualification campaign started for Euro 88, they had a fantastic win over France, reigning European champions in Paris at Parc de France. It was a 2-0 win, absolutely brilliant football from Soviet Union. Zavara was outstanding, probably one of those games that attracted Juventus to uh, him. And what struck me as well, if I look at you know, some of the players from uh, that, that Soviet Union team, uh, Dasayev, one the, probably one of the best keepers in the 80s in uh, World War Football, and Zavarov. Those guys, you know, left in 1988, most of the clubs like Dinamo Kiev and to move. Like, I mean, Zavarov, well known player, he went to UV and then went to Nancy, uh, uh, which was very unusual to, uh, to sign a Soviet Union player at the time. Even more interesting, he went to play for Saint-Dizier, who was the second tier and third tier club. Uh, in France, even coached Saint-Dizier for a few years between 1995 and 2003. Dasayev also left uh, Spartak Moscow in 1988 to Sevilla. What's the reason behind it? Because Belenov did exactly the same thing. Well, you have to understand that Soviet players, of course, weren't allowed to go abroad. So in the 80s, when rules were changing, there were first signs of that those players could go abroad. There was still a lot of work to do. And it was quite complicated you know, to negotiate with Soviet authorities, but at least they were ready to let players go. And even a few years ago, a few years before 1988, let's say, it probably wouldn't have happened. But by that time, yes, they were ready to talk. Uh, they were ready to listen to the offers. And for the players, 
you can imagine what kind of opportunity it was because <laughs> you were stuck in the same environment all your professional life and then you go abroad you're making actual money because of course they were paid something it was a good amount let's say in soviet union but when they went to italy germany and different countries it was something absolutely new for them and uh, i think it was weirdin boskov uh, who managed uh, in italy at the time who said the problem with soviet players is when they get their first million they think it's enough and they don't want to do anything else to get more millions unlike their western european uh, colleagues and do you think it was a, a political um, decision to let them go when mikhail gorbachev was uh, trying uh, to make soviet union a more democratic country well it was obvious that the country would fall apart not when he started that because it all started much earlier and it was bound to happen but he wanted it to be more open and that was part of it when you let footballers go and when they end up on a club like you there of course man it's a sign of the new times for them just you know relation to that um, 1986 uh, world cup uh, for the ussr who were the leaders in the team because i know the captain was anatoly damianko but uh, dasayev do you think dasayev zavarov belov were the 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 the, uh, the real leaders into uh, into the squad well i'd say dasayev was quite a charismatic figure in the team but also you have to understand that in that particular side especially after winning cup winners cup in 86 there were a lot of players with a character and you still had blahin he didn't play much in that particular world cup but he was in the squad and you had other players who could be leaders in any particular moment but maybe even though bilanov got a hat trick against belgium maybe what they needed against belgium someone at the back you know, to be a leader because again we're going back to what mark mentioned when they were considering those goals there was a lot of improvement to be made let's say in, in every uh, single situation maybe they didn't have what argentina had in 86 of course when they had maradona and they won the uh, title but then germany made it to the final without any outstanding player in their ranks as well so it's it's quite difficult to think about it and and, and say okay yeah they probably lacked this particular player or this particular player lacked leadership characteristics i mean it's fair to say belgium were tremendously strong at the time because they'd reached the second phase the old group stage the 12 team group stage of the last world cup but didn't make it into the semi-finals out of that euro 1980 finals but worth remembering they needed a playoff against the netherlands in order to get into that world cup and the dutch who two years later we would see just how good they were missed out and they were two sides who probably and the strength of they were in 86 well not easily but could have made the semi-finals yes sometimes we just forget how difficult the whole qualification process was but now when half of the uefa members can actually qualify for the european championship well, it's a bit easy but european championship was just of eight teams and well it was a bit more uh, for the world cup more um, teams from europe were playing in the world cup but he still had to go through that uh, qualification group and it wasn't that easy 
in those days, sometimes you, you actually, when, when you start thinking about that and you, you look at the games, you look at the tables, and you're like, bloody hell, that team was actually below that particular side and that side was so good. Or that team finished above this team that was also very, very good because, for example, Romania, who played in European Championship in 84, didn't qualify for Mexico 86 because Northern Ireland were actually better than them and uh, they went through with England. Yeah, Romania had to wait another four years to qualify for a major tournament, which was Italia 90. We'll be talking about them shortly. But that Belgian side was just tremendous. There was just a real classic look about them. Faf was, you know, reasonably... Reliable goalkeeper. There was Eric Gerrits, who was the only overseas-based member of the squad at the time. Strangely enough, with PSV Eindhoven, the then Belgian football club-wise was exceptionally strong. You had George Grun in the centre of defence. You had Stefan de Mol. You had Frankie Verkautren, who's won a couple of titles since then as a boss in Belgium. The captain, Jan Koulemans, who was part of that terrific 1980 side. Nico Clausen, who was still quite young. He was in his early 20s at the time. But then they were able to take Leo van der Elst off the bench. They went on to beat Spain in penalties in that uh, quarterfinals, which was played immediately after Argentina against England on that same day in 86. And obviously, they ended up coming up against Maradona in the semifinals when it was very much Maradona's year. Yeah, interesting about that um, Belgian team. And you talked about not many of them playing abroad. Jan Koeleman's has talked in the past about getting a huge offer from AC Milan after helping Belgium to the 1980 European Championship final. And he was told afterwards that he was the only person ever around that time to refuse Milan. Um, Whether that's true or not, it's a good story. But he was the captain of that team, scored in the quarterfinal as well against Spain. A good header, scored in that game against uh, the Soviets too. As good as they were, it was still incredible back then for Belgium, I think, to get to the uh, semi-finals and get that close um, because as Kuhlman said talking about the uh, Soviet Union he said they were probably the best team in the tournament they were certainly playing the best football at the time that scored nine conceded one in the groups and then as I say it was just uh, very strange that they um, didn't manage to, to squeak through but you have to remember they had a chance as well right at the end to kind of cross that went wrong that Faf uh, was able to react and tip over and the final whistle immediately blew then. So there could have been another penalty shootout in that World Cup, which was uh, pretty famous for them. Yeah, I think, you know, you have to remember as well, we talk about Diemo Kev, but the Belgium clubs in the 80s were pretty strong in Europe. But they couldn't the Champions League. Anderlecht went to the uh, semi-finals, I think, and, and lost against Tewa Bucharest in the uh, UFA Cup. Varigan was uh, went to the semis. But those clubs in Belgium was providing a lot of, you know, good players and those players were not travelling to foreign clubs, and uh, it was a strong place for, for football. And I remember, you know, from a French perspective, every time you play Belgium, that was going to be a struggle to beat them. Yeah, I mean, Anderlecht won the UEFA Cup in 83. They reached the final again in 84 and lost to Tottenham on penalties. Mechelen even won the Cup Winners' Cup, having come out of nowhere to win the, the Cup the year before. Michel Proudhon was in goal for them at the time, and then they went on to greater things as well. Was there a feeling... With Euro 88 a couple of years away, Dimitra, that the Soviet Union had a bit like we'd said with France of that same era, that they just sort of missed a chance? Well, probably, yeah. As I mentioned, that win over France and Paris, that restored the belief. And uh, when they qualified for Euro 88, there was 
some sort of expectation, I'd say, before the tournament. And they managed to get out of the very difficult group of beating uh, Netherlands and England. It was a one-one draw with Ireland. And then there was probably the pinnacle of uh, Lobanovsky's work with the national side, the semi-final against Italy, which was won 2-0. And if you really want to know what kind of manager he was, you should watch that game. Because before that game, he asked every player whether he was ready to play like they played, to put Italy under pressure in their own half. And everyone said yes. So that meant the whole team was behind the idea. They were prepared physically and mentally as well. That game for Italians as well was remarkable because so many Italian managers, uh, Fabio Capello, Marcello Lippi, later were talking how Lubinovsky influenced them as well when they watched his teams play. And that particular game was also mentioned because it's interesting, in the same year, in 88, Soviet Union in Italy played a friendly in Bari in February thing. It was 4-1 to Italy. And it was very, very different in uh, Germany in the summer. One thing that wasn't different was, in many ways, the makeup of the squad. There were still 11 players from Dynamo Kiev there. Lobnovsky was still there. Probably one name that had jumped into the squad uh, that hadn't been prominent for Mexico was Sergei Baltacha with Dynamo Kiev, who ended up with Ipswich Town and then is... Uh, when he was playing in Scotland, his daughter Elena ended up uh, becoming a British tennis player and sadly passed away at the height of her career. And Alexei Mikhailichenko was coming along at that stage. Was it a way that the, the World Cup was almost a kind of a dry run and that the main team, a, a younger side, was ready to emerge for Euro 88? Oh, you mentioned Mikhailichenko. He was just beginning to break through with Dean Kiev at the time. And 88 was probably his best season with the club. I think he was voted the best Soviet player of the year. If Soviet Union had beaten Netherlands in the final, he probably could have even had a chance uh, to get the Ballon d'Or. But I'd say that, no, it's like if, if you look at the team, it was basically the same team. They went to many changes. And that continuity also helped them in the European Championship against opponents in the group stage and then of course against Italy who were themselves building the team for the World Cup they will be hosting two years later. And Stefan you've been doing some extra viewing yourself with a Soviet Union hint. 1974 Ireland 3 USSR nil. Don Givens hat-trick. Surprisingly uh, I couldn't believe uh, the number of people at the game at Dalyman Park and uh, I'm still uh, puzzled about uh, how many people Dalyman Park can hold on the game. At the game, it's, uh, it's uh, I could see some supporters, you know, on the roof of the, at Dalyman Park to watch the game. Great performance for the Irish and three uh, 0 Look, I was not very familiar with the uh, the uh, that game to be honest with you, Will, and uh, it's something I just uh, look at, you know, on the just on the night. And uh, I see it was a great game of football, and Ireland dominating, you know, quite easily and comfortably the uh, uh, that team. Yeah, that was Brady and Giles in midfield, and Giles. There was uh, the beginning of the trend of. The player manager, and he was captain as well. Steve Highway of Liverpool, Ray Tracy, who ended up being Shamrock Rovers' boss, and ended up with a bit of a TV career as well. I mean, absolutely great days. And the thing about Daily Man, the official attendance thirty one thousand seven hundred and fifty eight. But it was quite similar again for that Ireland France game that we were talking about recently in nineteen eighty one, where Michael Robinson had dominated so much. And if I remember, one of Italy's first games after being crowned world champions in eighty two, again was 
away to Ireland at Daily Mount and possibly just a friendly, but again, absolutely crammed. The stadium doesn't look like that anymore, but it looked incredible when it was full. 100% safe? Maybe not. No, but I have to say I was quite impressed by Liam Brady making that run there in the uh, central midfield and uh, trying to finish here with a strike all the time. And uh, every time he had the ball, something was happening with Liam Brady. We don't recognise Liam Brady as a, the player he was, basically. Stefan said there were some fans on the roof. I'd say there were thousands looking at those images. But that goes to show, you know, it was a, a really big sport in Ireland and one of the reasons was we had players like Johnny Giles and Liam Brady and I keep saying this we did play good football back in the day a lot of uh, people who've seen Ireland play in the last 20 years maybe don't agree but um, that was a, a great example Brady and Giles in midfield Brady making his debut for Ireland strikes me nowadays we talk about you know Jack Grealish we have to get him in he has to play uh, Troy Parrott has to play we've had these players over the last few years one as of yet, they're nothing like Liam Brady because he truly was a world-class player and clearly was at that stage. And the other, I look back, Brady had played a clutch of games for Arsenal, I think at least a couple the season before. That game was played in October and Brady had started a whole series of games for Arsenal before getting his debut for Ireland. So it always frustrates me when there's this clamour for any player who's done anything to get a game for Ireland and I think that was shown back then. You kind of had to prove yourself and then you're ready for international football, which I don't think has been the case for some of the players we've been uh, bigging up over the last few years as um, journalists and artist supporters, I suppose. And then, you know, about Ian Brady, his look with his long hair, he was quite charismatic on the pitch. I know it was his debut, you know, he was just starting with Ireland. And, uh, but every time he touched the ball, you, you know, something was happening. You know, I have to be honest with you. Look, I was looking at the, for the first time the game and... Uh, Struck me at first thing, you know, Liam Brady in the middle of the park and uh, driving. It was a driving force in the middle of the pitch, and uh, how many fans could be squeezed at Dalyman Park? <laughs> That's quite impressive, after <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah, and actually, interesting mentioning uh, Liam Brady, ITV at the 1979 FA Cup final on last week, which was, you know, the five minute final. Arsenal 2 0 up, then Manchester United pull it back to 2 2. 2 0 up with five minutes to go, then it's 2 2, and then Alan Sunderland gets the winner. And uh, Kevin Corcoran, who I worked with in TV for a long time, producer, director, he, he just sent a good message off the back of that. Arsenal had three from Northern Ireland, three from the Republic of Ireland, one Scott and four Englishmen playing that day, and United had five Scots, two from Northern Ireland, one Wales, and three English. And that was before, you know, the likes of Paul McGrath came into the squad. Different times, definitely. And there were two excellent squads as well. On a final note about uh, that, that game against uh, USSO, it took me a while to recognise Dalyman Park, because I wasn't sure initially it was Dalyman Park with so many people around the pitch. Yeah, it's a pity what happened, because obviously a bit of that... Stand facing the cameras was knocked and obviously the TV cameras then went over to the other side but that's a car park now I remember even when I was a kid when you used to get occasional friendlies in Daily Mount in the 80s and it was packed and the atmosphere would be brilliant and there are some photos that you would see even from League of Ireland games from the 60s and 70s when there would be touching on 30,000 there and it looked absolutely incredible and having done the last I think, competitive game that was there that was on TV. Yeah, it definitely needs a bit of redevelopment, certainly. Yeah, nothing has really changed, you know, to be honest with you at uh, Dalyman Park, but uh, with a full crowd, it looks a proper, a proper pitch. So I remember during the Satanta Cup, there was a Saturday lunchtime game. Bohemians were at home to somebody like Linfield or Glentoran. 
and they put them where the cameras are, which is normally now empty these days, that terrace. And it definitely helped the atmosphere. So facing the Jody stand, same side as the cameras. And the atmosphere was fantastic. There must have been about four or 500 fans who'd come down from Belfast for that. And it was an absolutely brilliant atmosphere. It was fabulous. And it's not the sort of thing that you get much of anymore. And I played my first game in Ireland at Dalyman Park against uh, Bowes with Shelbourne. That was in 1997. We lost 2-1. A fault for the goals? You scored, did you? No. We lost, unfortunately, <laughs> and, and we knocked out Chile as well. Stefan's point about Brady... One of the reasons maybe he's not appreciated as much as he should be is the fact that he missed out on Euro 88 and World Cup uh, 1990 as well. You know, he'd be a much bigger name, I think. He he is a big name in Europe, but uh, more remembered in Ireland if he had played in those tournaments. But that's that's very strange, uh, Mark, because when you look at Brady, like he's he's well known in France because he played for UV and in Italy or Spain, whatever. I can I mean I can ask my dad; he will know about Liam Brady. I'm not saying he will know about Roy Keane, but he will know about more Liam Brady than Roy Keane because uh, Liam Brady played in UV. Uh, UV in the eighty was a you know a big big club in Europe. Not on Irish TV. That's it. I would say, unfortunately, the problem was the first season we got Serie A in Ireland was 89-90 and he'd already gone back to English football and to West Ham by that stage. I mean, his final few seasons with West Ham, he scored some absolutely terrific goals, but they got relegated during that time, unfortunately, had a couple of good cup runs. But the peak of his career at club level, we never got to see because we we didn't have Serie A at the time. It would have been wonderful to see him because remember, he was player of the year one season there which is remarkable when you think about it. Yeah, and there's nobody many Irish players who went to play for Juve. It's something It's quite remarkable for, for, uh, for a young guy from uh, Santry, I presume, isn't it? Yeah, Whitehall. Robbie Keane had his time at Inter as well, which we all got to see, but that was a different story. Yeah, but Liam Brady was, uh, was the main player at Juve. He was a guy who was, again, you know, the drawing for the park. Robbie Keane was a young player going to Inter. It's a different ball game, you know, then, and surely like Brady, there was... Uh, High expectation going to UV to deliver. And while to me, the best player in Ireland so far was maybe Paul McGrath. Right, that is it for now. We'll be coming back to you after the weekend with a look at the first Bundesliga season and whatever other action there's been in Europe, Faroe Islands, Belarus, bit of action in Korea as well this weekend. But until then, don't forget to like and rate. Do subscribe also. And we'll be back in a few days' time. Bye. (laughs) 